This week's podcast is brought to you by the State of Online STEM Education in the U.S., an upcoming national survey from the Online Learning Consortium and the Every Learner Everywhere Network. The survey will explore the online STEM landscape through the lenses of faculty, institutional leadership, researchers, and policymakers. Please sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. The library's closed. I mean, everything's closed thanks to COVID-19. Or it feels like everything. But the library? You know this health crisis must be bad for that to happen. I mean, these are places, libraries, that pride themselves on being there for us. But yeah, welcome to mid-March 2020. And many libraries have been forced to shut down to try to stop the spread of the coronavirus. It's one of the latest changes brought on by this invisible but disruptive force sweeping across the country. Well, I mean the world. Hi, I'm Jeff Young, and this is the Ed Search Podcast. We've been doing a lot of coverage this month of schools and colleges closing, shifting online to finish out their semesters uh, amid the pandemic. And naturally, libraries that are being forced to shut their doors, they're trying to shift to online too. But what does it mean for a librarian to stay working when the library building is closed? After all, libraries do so much. I mean, I kind of think of them as like duct tape, patching up the kind of many social inequalities we have. I once literally checked out a book from a library about how to make things out of duct tape. I made a wallet. But what I mean now is is more of a metaphor. Public libraries end up holding things together for people who just can't afford certain services in our economy. For instance, for some people, libraries are a key to getting on the internet at all. And with schools and colleges now shifting online in the name of social distancing, it's a tough blow to see libraries suddenly have to close as well, even though I I totally understand the medical reasons for that. To get a sense of what the widespread closures of libraries could mean, and here's some creative ways librarians are reaching out digitally, I connected with Jessamine West. I connected yesterday with Jessamine West. Who is Jessamine West? The simplest way to put it is she is a library technologist living in Vermont. That's how she puts it on her long-running blog, librarian.net. But from her perch in this small rural area, um, thanks to her blogging and tweeting and public speaking around the country, she's become an important voice in how libraries can use tech for both obvious things like digital books, but also activities at the heart of what makes libraries so key and crucial as institutions in our society. And for years and years, she's been calling attention to the digital divide in this country and talking about how libraries can help close that gap. Personally, I have to say, I've been reading her work for years, and I was really wanting to hear what she has to say about this challenging time we find ourselves in. So I think that's all the intro you need from me. Let's get to this conversation with Jessamine West. We're here with Jessamine West. I mean, what do you see as, um, you know, you were somebody who's been embracing the digital for a long time. Um, What is your take on, like, how much the kind of digital resources can actually fill in this gap that's left by the these sudden closures and and what how can people be thinking about this well it's tricky right i try to stay optimistic about what the things are that we can do and i also uh study the digital divide a lot and so you know people who are under resourced technologically for a variety of reasons right and there's a whole bunch of different reasons why why that might happen. And one of the things we see in rural areas is it's not just our patrons in libraries who are under-resourced. Sometimes it's our staff 
in libraries who are not just maybe not super savvy with technology because there's lots of jobs you can do in libraries and some of them are technology adjacent, but they're not all working with a computer. But the problem is there's not always a path for them to be able to achieve more technological competency or especially kind of lead the way for our patrons. And a lot of times we find a precipitating event. So in Vermont, uh, we had uh, Hurricane Irene uh, came through here and flooded all of our rivers and isolated some of our towns. And in those times, people who didn't have access to technology when FEMA was only doing updates over Facebook were sad. Right. And and they found themselves less connected to what they needed. So now it's years later. Uh, we are having this situation where people are really told to, like, stay at home for the good of the community as much as physically possible. Right. We we don't know enough about the transmission of this virus to be able to ensure safety for people who come into our buildings, which are our love and our you know, the, the sort of the core of a lot of our feelings about libraries. And so what we're winding up having to do is see how quickly and how rapidly we can pivot to, I mean, pivot's such a word nowadays, but like pivot to digital ways of doing some of the stuff that aren't just, oh, hey, we've got eBooks or, oh, hey, we've got audiobooks, right? And for a lot of libraries, that's not something you can do on a dime, right? Like Mo Willems can all of a sudden be like, hey, it's totally fine if you want to read my books at a nonprofit story time. And that's great for like, don't let the pigeon on the bus. But it doesn't mean that the librarian who's been approved to do that knows how to use Twitch TV, right? Like there's all of these tools that haven't formerly been in our wheelhouse that kind of need to have already been in our wheelhouse and instead we're scrambling in some ways to find good ways to do content delivery and especially for patrons who really aren't you know they're they're digitally divided they're under resourced they want content which is a thing that's kind of not a hard problem but they also want community which is a hard problem and one that you can't just start from nowhere you had to kind of already have it to begin with and it's challenging i think for the librarians of the world to figure out ways to help people get not only what they want but maybe in these times what they need yeah yeah i mean there is i feel like people have a sense that libraries as the buildings whether it's in a public library setting or even on a campus are more than just the books. Because in fact, you've seen over the, the last few years at colleges, many the last couple of decades, really, you know, there were these controversies over like a big university library would say, we're moving all these campus, these books to an off-campus storage facility and there would be an outcry. And then over time, but then you're using that prime real estate on campus to do the community and to do other things. And people, you know, it seems like I hear less controversy about that now. It's become the way libraries function. And so there is... It seems like there's awareness that the building has other functions besides content. Yeah, and well, and in rural communities especially, like we have the Wi-Fi you don't have at home. You know, we've got a clean bathroom that is available to all genders. We have, you know, space for your kids to play safely while you work on your tax forms or whatever the thing is. We're heated in the winter. We're cool in the summer. Like we have 
things that either you may not have at home or you don't have comfortable access to at home for a variety of reasons. And I mean, to be honest, like most libraries are leaving their Wi-Fi on, but pardon me, like it's, it's a different experience being in the parking lot, right? Like what you want is to have some kind of fellowship and community with your neighbors and historically, that has really been the building, right? That has been our programs, especially. And that has been our, um, you know, you're a mom with a young kid. Like we look at sort of the demographics of who's coming into the library, right? And a lot of times it's like older people who just want to come read the paper and be somewhere where there's traffic and, and, and something going on, you know? And that's great, right? We love that in my community because he's, oh, hey, oh, there's the lady that does the puzzles every day. And you kind of know her. And man, just having a sense of continuity is actually part, I think, of how you know you're a community, right? You you have these regular things that happen. The knitting group is on Monday and people sit around and BS about this, that, and the other thing. But I know if I walk to the library and drop off a book on Monday, I'm going to say hi to all the knitter people and like, hey, hey. And those things are important to us and they're especially important for sort of our, our, our heart, right? Like they're, you know, the library has always been like, we nourish the brain. And everyone's like, well, we know that. But like you can get your own book from anywhere and nourish your brain yourself. But what you can't really get is that kind of everybody hanging around in a place where nobody is trying to sell you something, which I think is so important. And you can be part of the community and you're welcome there. You know what I mean? Like that sense of being welcome in a space that is yours with your people, frankly. And and there isn't any other place like that. I mean, we see people crowding into the bars like idiots uh, over this weekend. And like, that's not the same thing. You know, not everybody is welcome there. It's a it's a different situation. And so it's it's the kind of heart nourishing, you know, the people that care about you, no matter who you are, what you are, how you are, what the thing is. You know, so young people with children, there's often a resurgence, like teenagers come to the library, but then they go away to college and they kind of leave the library, but then they have babies and they come back to the library because my God, you're a young mother or father and you're exhausted. And then you can just sit and be with other parents in a place that is for you and like chill while your kid talks to somebody else for a little bit. You learn new stories and new ways to interact. But, but above all, you know, it's safe and it's for you. And unfortunately, you know, with the events over the last couple of days, we can't ensure people's safety if we let people into the building. And that's really been just killing everybody trying to find ways to recreate that community using digital tools when everybody's life is suddenly doing a digital pivot I mean, what are some of the things you've seen? I know you're very well connected with your newsletter and your your blog and, and your websites. Um, what are some of the things you're seeing that libraries are doing to to try to address some of the big challenges we're, you're talking about? Well, I mean, it, it really is library by library. Like one of the things about libraries that's really interesting is how distributed they are, right? So they, they receive guidance from their state library, either association or their state library, or both if they're lucky. Uh, but libraries individually get to do whatever the heck they want, which is 
tricky, right? So, you know, in some states, libraries have consortia where they have sort of centralized technology and they can be like, all right, we've got a Zoom instance. I don't even know what you call it, but like Harvard's got their own Zoom. You know what I mean? And for libraries, it's often like finding stuff that's off the shelf and figuring out how to do something with it without a bunch of money, which is basically them and like half of America right now. So, you know, I... I've seen them do, uh, I mean, you can do story times with people who have access to the internet through a number of nice streaming platforms. Libraries can help you figure out the copyright implications of that and how much you're likely to receive a takedown notice from YouTube, right? Like one of the things I've seen librarians doing over the last like three days is assembling syllabi of access to information about the thing. So they're not, I mean, they're doing story time, right? But they're also telling other people, teachers especially, but parents, like everybody's kids are at home, what? How to do a story time or what they can do or what tools they can use or how they can figure stuff out. I'm on a mailing list for a bunch of people who study digital divide issues and they're creating lists of internet service providers who are offering low cost or removing bandwidth caps so that people can get internet access where maybe they never did or they had bad internet access or they were on lifeline service and they can get better access to that. I've seen, I'm part of a library's resist group that has a huge thing that's just about what we call the librarian resistance. Here I am with my little, you know, spaceman hat on. But like the librarian resistance after this administration made some nasty remarks several years ago, we were like, we need to have a response, not just uh like we don't just do our own thing and pretend that this isn't a problem here are ways so like mutual aid stuff directing people to local facebook groups where people are doing their own mutual aid like a lot of what we do and it's it's challenging but a lot of what we do in the absence of the building is help people get other places and help people connect to other things like i always thought in my ideal me I would mostly just be a pass-through of information, right? Like, it's not about me. And I mean, I personally am connected to many people, but what they need to do is connect personally to other stuff. And if I can facilitate or enhance or improve that connection for people, and often nowadays it's like figuring out how to use Twitch, right, for, for trivia since the bar's been closed, which is a you know an example from this morning, right? Figuring out how to do story time. We've got a speaker who's coming, but we don't want people to come into the library. Can we have a way to have them deliver that in a way that is authentic and feels authentic for people with limited or not great access. I'm on the board of the Vermont Humanities Council. We're trying to figure some stuff out about our first Wednesdays program where we have, you know, eight different speakers all over the state doing these great talks. Can we pivot that to online? Having a librarian help you figure out all the parts of that. How do you make it accessible, right? Like we understand physical accessibility. Digital accessibility is complicated and trying to figure that out is part of what we can be helping other people do. And also just literally being a voice of calm and hey, we're still your community and we're still here. Like even if the building isn't a place we can get together, we're still here. Let's find other appropriate, useful, and nourishing ways that we can still do our thing. After the break, 
We talk about the role of libraries in addressing the digital divide in this country. Can they still do that if they're closed for the pandemic? Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Every Learner Everywhere in partnership with the Online Learning Consortium. They're running a survey of the online STEM landscape. I asked the survey's leader, Devin Kinsilla, why this national survey is so important for the future of online STEM education. What we realized is that there's a real opportunity to kind of drill down a little bit more. So instead of generically about just online education and people's thoughts and, you know, beliefs and is it good, bad, you know, indifferent kind of thing, is saying, you know, we really don't understand the STEM education and the aspects of STEM education online. And so what this is, is kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a spinoff of that, if you will, to kind of better understand, because really, to my knowledge, no one knows. Um, you know, we have a lot of kind of ideas and a lot of thoughts and a lot of, you know, kind of experience and anecdotal type stuff. But you could certainly, you know, throw down the gauntlet and say, we know a lot about MBA programs online or, or English degrees online or, you know, nursing degrees online, but we really don't know that much about STEM education in, in kind of all its forms. You can sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. Now back to the episode. You've been a longtime advocate for, <clears throat> you know, calling attention to and then hopefully trying to solve some issues around digital divide. And um, I'm curious where you think things stand and what the, um, you know, what this is a big thing at this moment where things are shifting digitally. So it seems like we're going to find out in some ways how much access people can really have um, across communities. Where do you think things stand and what are your kind of um, feelings and recommendations on, you know, what to do about it based on where we are? Well, I know that, you know, from just sort of paying attention to what was going on this weekend, um, you know, Governor Scott of, of Vermont, which is where I am, uh, was really kind of against closing the schools. And one of the reasons and you're seeing this in New York public uh, schools as well. One of the arguments for not closing the schools is that's where children eat <laughs> and that's where children are, um, you know, safe while their parents who may be, you know, emergency workers, essential workers or wherever, that is a place children can be that is um, that is sort of safe and appropriate. And the other argument around here, besides that's where children eat, is that's where children can access a computer and that's where children can access the internet in, uh, you know, sort of appropriate ways. And we're really concerned. I mean, I live in Orange County. It's in the middle of Vermont. It's one of the least connected counties, um, more so in literally the last year because of EC Fiber, a local fiber initiative. But like they only go as fast as they can go. And so we've got a real concern that we send children home and they don't have access to the internet. What's their digital experience going to be as opposed to a kid who lives in the village? And so the concern is really that we're exacerbating inequalities that already exist, whereas schools and libraries were the great leveler of an unequal system that already existed because of not just poverty, which I think is a more obvious one, but this kind of sort of tradition, you know, that like there really still is this weird... Um, Weird may be the wrong word, but this kind of um, nobility to like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not online. Like, that's just where you go get your information stolen or what have you. 
And we're combating that in the same way we're combating people who can't afford it, people who kind of don't know enough to get it, if that makes sense. And so some of that is information, right? And some of that is trying to sort of explain to people this unequal situation that exists so that we can figure out how to grapple with it. Because like, what are you going to do if like Comcast is your only option and they've and you owe them money because of something that happened in your life six months ago because things are complicated and they've got this great deal now, but only for people who don't owe Comcast money and you've just been laid off from your job. And like, what is your life like, right? And so, you know, we've been talking about with a solution-oriented mindset, like, you know, I'm kind of talking to you about like, rah, 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 but like from a solution-oriented mindset, you know, libraries can lend hotspots, which are, you know, I mean, mobile, mobile internet that maybe could be shared among communities, not just individuals. It's not perfect, but it'll definitely help. Uh, those are often things that are purchased by the library and they have, you know, their own kind of bandwidth caps associated with them. But sometimes it's easier for a library to get a handful of hotspots than it is to have Comcast forgive $300 that somebody owes them. Um, figuring out how to get people online. I mean, the, really the biggest challenge for us, I think, right now I mean, two, right? Paying your taxes and getting on the census. A lot of our census work was geared up to be me with an iPad going to the senior center, talking to some people about how to do the thing. And I'm not sure if that's a thing you can deliver digitally, right? And so really trying to kind of think, 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 like, could we, you know, airdrop iPads into the senior center and do some video chat with people while they do the stuff? Can we screen share? Like we're not allowed to touch their computer, but what if we screen share and move their mouse from home? You know, like really trying to figure out what I call the pain points of where some of this stuff happens for people who are digitally divided and taxes, of course, every year it's a fiasco and it's going to be extra fiasco this year. And so trying to figure out how we can offer the most help in the safest way possible so that our communities are not just continuing to sort of keep on keeping on, but that they're also safe. What about academic libraries? A lot of, um, like you mentioned, colleges are, are shuttered at this point, And that has been such a hub for life of, of students and faculty. Um, what are you seeing the academic libraries doing? Most academic libraries, at least, have staff that are digitally savvy. They do digital document delivery in all sorts of ways. They have access to lots and lots and lots of digital content. And so for them, the content is less the problem. It's, I mean, it's a problem, of course, but it's less the problem. But trying to figure out ways to have sort of continuity of experience. I mean, in many cases, if the students have been sent home, everything you're doing now is some variety of reference work, really. I've got a good friend who works at Houghton Library at Harvard, and they had a great thread on Twitter about what does archives work look like when you aren't allowed to touch your own things, right? Like, like if, if you're not going to be there preserving ancient documents, what does it look like to uh, continue to be a librarian for maybe months? What were some of the answers this? to that? Well, uh, you know, a lot of them had to do with uh, basically not hiding your life, your light under a bushel basket, right? Like it's all about 
because everybody has, you know, stereotypes of what they think an archivist is like, right? And it's, it's almost worse than what a librarian is because a lot of times they know a librarian, but maybe they don't know an archivist. And so they think it's some old little, you know, shriveled potato man in a basement somewhere blowing dust off of stuff. And it's nothing like that, right? And so part of it can be sort of meet the archivist, right? Like in some cases, uh, staff are still allowed in their buildings, right? So you're not, you can't do your preservation work, but you can work at your desk. And maybe you spend some time being like, hey, have you ever wondered about the Gutenberg Bible? Let's, you know, I'm gesturing with my hands here, but like, let's, let's, let's take a look at why it's so important and why people care. I mean, listening just to, I mean, library Twitter is great in general. Like, I know Twitter itself has problems, but like library Twitter has fewer of them. And watching archivists talk about their materials and the things they know about their materials that are shared community knowledge that is completely opaque to outsiders, right? The Gutenberg Bible is a real experience, right? Like my friend was talking about the Gutenberg Bible and then somebody else who works at, I think Folger, I don't know, another rare book library was like, oh, you've only got one? Like we've got two Gutenberg Bibles and it's really interesting to compare and contrast. And I'm like, I am so here for this Twitter humble brag of like, oh, you've only got one Gutenberg? But like that kind of stuff can humanize our profession. We can work on our image. We can do outreach to people. We can post pictures of stuff. One of the things that's great about archives is they've often got a lot of public domain content. And so they're not in this awkward situation of trying to figure out what and how much they can share, which is a lot harder for republics in this day and age. Um, but also, you know, answering questions, take your questions. Like I do at the public library, like a little drop in time where like I sit in a room and people come in with their computer questions. And, you know, I do a Twitter thread every week of what questions people had. And it, you really learn a lot about how people who aren't hardcore, very online people experience technology. And I, you know, posted a thing to our local mailing list and was like, hey, I'm not going to be able to do this but I'll answer anybody's tech support questions over email. And by the way, here's how to write a good tech support question over email. And here's how to take a screenshot. And here's how to send me a screenshot. And so, you know, archivists can talk to people about preserving their own books. Like it's not their same job, but at least it's a job. I mean, at least in libraries, people are staying employed. And that is because, you know, the public library budget was set at the beginning of the year, like, you got it, whether you're coming to work or not, we might as well use it to help people, especially people for whom that is not true. And they are, you know, scared and tired and frustrated and lonely and trying to figure out how to find a path forward. Being someone who can be like, well, we've got some resources and some problem solving ability. Maybe we can help be part of your problem solving path. And, and I, I think that's a, I think that's a kindness. I mean, the one thing I do want to mention, which is the downside to some of this is what we call in the profession, um, vocational awe, like the sense that we are so special that if we did close our buildings, it, it, it would cause some heretofore unimaginable negative consequence for our community. And I think, I think there's a sense in which you say libraries are essential and you mean it, but I also think there's a sense in which we we're still here if we close the door and we shouldn't think that we are so irreplaceable in the lives of the people we deal with that having this risk 
that we should downplay the risk because it's so important that people get access to us personally. You know what I mean? And so that, that those are like the arguments on library and Twitter is like, you know, as of this morning when I got up, Boston Public Library hadn't closed and New York Public Library had closed and libraries in Vermont are just literally literally one by one. There's a staff meeting I am missing literally in an hour that's going to talk about this for our library that serves 4,500 people. And you can tell there's a difference of opinion between the director and the staff. And it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. And hopefully we can do that sort of with dignity and et cetera. But part of how you make that decision comes with what you think you lose when you close the door to the building. Hmm. This this interesting that you mentioned this kind of awe reverence of librarians in other words like you are your mission can go on even if the building is not there or even if one particular librarian is out that day or whatever for taking care of their kids it's hard right i mean it it becomes a very complicated critique of the neoliberal agenda if if you want to be you know serious about it but but really the issue is trying to figure our appropriate place in society because like you know there's a blizzard. We're open. Everybody's power's on. We're open and got the generator going. And, you know, libraries have bicycles to help you charge your phone. Like libraries are really doing some cool stuff in disasters. And people look to us as places, especially people for whom maybe church isn't an option, which I think is the other place a lot of people look. Right. And church Around here, we're really lucky and we've got a very churchy community, but it really is welcoming to a wide variety of people. But not everybody has that um, with with the churches in their community. And that's a real problem. And so trying to figure out the appropriate role, you know, when FEMA says you're an essential organization that should be sort of brought back as quickly as possible during a disaster, how does that translate to something like this? Right. Where we don't have leadership at the federal level, Um, you know, in librarianship, we're not getting a lot of leadership at the sort of organizational level. You know, the American Library Association has been a little slow to respond with, you know, close your libraries or like whatever the thing is, leaving people to make their individual decisions. But trying it's really hard to kind of get over yourself. Right. Because part of vocational awe means you'll work for not enough money. And part of vocational awe means you'll step in for social service agencies who are supposed to be doing stuff and can't or won't for various reasons, right? Part of vocational awe is you try to do everything you can, even when at the end, you know, you work more hours than you're getting paid for, or, you know, you give people supplies that you bought yourself. I mean, teachers have the same problem, but a lot of times teachers, more teachers are likely to have unions than libraries are, right? I mean, unions are a huge thing in in all of this, basically. And so trying to figure out what's appropriate, what's an appropriate amount of heroism to, to dive into this with. And I think part of the issue, like at my personal library, is just looking at like how much hand sanitizer we have and how much we're actually able to keep people the level of safe we would need to be able to keep them, given that we have tons of at-risk populations who meet congregate and share two bathrooms at our library, if we can't keep them safe, if we couldn't talk to an immunocompromised person and be like, you can walk into the library and be sure you're not going to walk out with a deadly disease, we would try, but we we don't, we aren't, and that's kind of not our job. And it's so hard to say that anything's not our job, because in many ways we're like, we can do anything. 
but we have to kind of know what the boundaries of that are. And unfortunately, part of the boundaries have been, we don't set up your computer. We don't, you know, we don't get into your home, right? Like we'll deliver books to people who can't leave their homes, but we don't like go into somebody's house and help them set up their TV. And yet that may be the barrier that they're having getting access to library services. And so it's a new challenge for us. It seems like overall, if I had a conclusion from our talk, it seems like that librarians for a long time in libraries have been a duct tape to all kinds of social issues, especially around educational equity. And that that is really evident as libraries are starting to have to close and pivot to online. Yeah, I mean, educational equity and all sorts of social equity, honestly, right? Like you can just walk into the building and you're one of us the end, right? Nobody cares what your situation is, except if you need help with it. You know what I mean? Like your personal stuff is your personal stuff unless you want assistance, right? Nobody's going to like throw shade at you for trying to use the bathroom. Nobody's going to, you want to sit there all day and like mess around on your phone or your puzzle or read your newspaper or whatever. I, I don't mean to say I don't care in an uncaring way, but just in a hey, it's all right. What you want to do is all right. If you don't interfere with other people, it's all right in this building that you paid for, that we all paid for, and we all get to share it. All we do as librarians is help you get what you need to sort of do you, right? You paid for it. It's yours. All we are is the facilitators of getting your stuff to you and what do you need. So educational equity is an important part of it, but also just like social equity, if we're being honest, right? And like digital equity in a larger way, figuring out how to get access to stuff and problem solvers, I feel like. Like the difference between, you know, Amazon that used to call themselves the world's largest library and hell with them and the library library is we've got human beings that'll help you with access to things if you need help and help is an important thing, especially in these weird and difficult times. And people know that we're there. We're not judgmental. We belong to them. And so that's what builds a community, honestly. Thank you so much, uh, Jessamine West. This has been amazing. And I appreciate your taking the time quickly to, to talk with us today. Sure. Glad we could fit it in. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome. We post new episodes every Tuesday, except in this unusual time where we're kind of doing extras a lot. Make sure to check out the bonus episode we posted last Wednesday, for instance. That has tips for professors who have suddenly uh, been asked to teach online. I mean, that was last week, and I, I have to say, everything felt so different just that week ago. But I think the interview holds up and has some useful advice and, and thoughts about the implications of this giant shift to online teaching. Here at EdSearch, we're also running a series of webinars for educators each week. You can find the details at edsearch.com. There's a pink banner across the top of the site. You can find our guide linking to all this, uh, to the resources we have. You can send me ideas for other podcasts or articles we should do, or just say hi at jeff at edsearch.com. We'll be here. Many of us at EdSearch already worked from home before this, and now we're definitely at home for a while, but we're listening, and we're looking for ways to answer questions and find out what's going on out there in the world of education. I was looking for some clever pop culture reference to close the show today, and I came across this great list of library scenes from Hollywood movies. I don't, so I don't have any sound clips to play, but man, just looking at this list, it just reminded me how much I love libraries, and I think we all do. There's a scene um, in the Breakfast Club at the school library. Uh, 
All the President's Men has a scene where Woodward and Bernstein are investigating at the Library of Congress. Every Harry Potter movie's got some moments in the Hogwarts Library. And I'd also forgotten this, but apparently there's a scene uh, in Superman at the Library in the Fortress of Solitude. Thanks, librarians. And thank you all for listening. Talk to you soon.